Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello, and welcome to this recording of the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician and neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues and friends, Drs. Kyle Walsh and Charles Kirscher. I'm going to let them introduce themselves today and give you a brief bit of their own background so you know why we're here today together talking about how we coordinate care within our hospitals to improve outcomes in hemorrhagic stroke patients. Dr. Walsh, let's start with you. Who are you? All right. Thank you. So my name is Kyle Walsh, and I work as an emergency medicine physician, as well as neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati, and then also with the UC Stroke team, where we take a call for acute stroke patients throughout the tri-state region here in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. And you have this additional research background where you're in a lab somewhere doing something. Right. So I also do a fair amount of research related to stroke and particularly related to uh, inflammation after intracerebral hemorrhage, mostly using transcriptomics as the methodology for that. Got it. Thank you, sir. Dr. Kircher? Thank you, Dr. Bonomo. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm Charlie Kircher. Like uh, Dr. Walsh, I am also an emergency physician. Um, I am one of the neurointensivists here, and I'm one of the co-directors of our uh, multidisciplinary stroke team. So my interests are more in logistics of stroke care throughout a hospital system and a region, but at least I can pronounce transcriptomics. Yes, I, I cannot pronounce that, but what I can pronounce is MBA, which is about where you are right now, right? You're almost done with it, and you are a uh, logistician extraordinaire. So I thought it would be good to get you guys together to talk about coordinating care within hospitals to improve outcomes in hemorrhagic stroke patients, right? When I was in training, there really weren't a lot of therapies for stroke that were particularly useful, for hemorrhagic stroke patients that were, were particularly useful. And I feel like that may still be the case, although I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know is that we're trying to make things smoother, faster, better. Um, and we're trying to really look at it from a multidisciplinary standpoint. How do we best optimize care for these patients? And I thought the two of you would be really good alchemy for this discussion. So, gentlemen, how do we make it better? Well, you know, I think um, if you look at what we have right now, right, I know Dr. Walsh is working on developing the next generation, but what we have right now are really two or three primary things we can do to improve care in the first, you know, two to three hours of patient's course. So that's, you know, control of factors that promote clot expansion uh, and making sure that we're taking care of the rest of the patient and supporting the rest of their body through this insult. So, you know, good critical resuscitative care is essential, and part of that includes blood pressure management as well as reversal of anticoagulation and antiplatelet agents. And so, you know, we have a few effective therapies depending on a patient's uh, particular medical history, and I think, you know, we have to look at giving those early in the primary hospital setting, so before patients transfer to higher level of care, and that means that any institution who's receiving suspected stroke patients really needs to have a protocol to hit those metrics early and then get the patient to a higher level of care if they're going to need either surgery or an intraventricular drainage or something like that. Great points. And I'll just, I'll add that for anticoagulation in particular, reversal of anticoagulation. So we have, of course, metrics that we're familiar with for ischemic stroke related to like door to CT time and door to needle time in the event that the patients are treated with thrombolytics. And you can think analogously with 
hemorrhagic stroke, but oftentimes we don't necessarily do that, right? So even for a patient who maybe does end up receiving something like PCCs to uh, reverse anticoagulation in hemorrhagic stroke, the question becomes, but are we thinking about it in terms of time, right? In terms of door to reversal, for example. And I think that in the future, we'll see more of those metrics established, but currently that's not um, really the case in many institutions. They may have protocols related to reversal of anticoagulation, but there isn't as much of a focus on time. And so I think that's something we'll see develop more in the future. And unlike suspected stroke patients, ischemic stroke patients, where we, well, even with suspected ischemic stroke patients, we know that, you know, early treatment of symptoms improves functional outcomes and prevents secondary and primary injury, but we don't always think about when's the last time an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke patient, excuse me, was last well. I think when you look at, you know, one of the biggest risk factors for poor outcome is hemorrhage expansion. That may be the natural course when you catch patients early, but we don't know oftentimes how long it's been since someone's hemorrhage started. So if you assume that patients who show up to your door with a de novo hemorrhage had it happen relatively recently, then it goes to say that we should do everything we can to prevent hematoma growth and expansion, much like we would do everything we can to prevent ischemic core growth by giving lytics or arranging for uh, thrombectomy. I think that's an important point. In, in the past, we've had a lot of top-down pressure with ischemic stroke to move as quickly as humanly possible and get our therapies in within three hours because that's what the data told us and ultimately four and a half. And we did not have that same downward time pressure related to ICH. There were no metrics, as you mentioned. Um, the data really hadn't been fleshed out enough to make us think that early expansion was as critical. I think that's been over the last 10 years, something that we've effectively all agreed upon, that Ultra early care can prevent early expansion. That's an important thing to do. We don't have those metrics yet, but maybe they're coming at some point. I'm going to push on you guys a little bit. I, I want to hear what you think about the term outcome. So we talk about improving outcomes. And I, I think it's somewhat self-evident to many people when they think about outcomes. What do you look like three or six months downrange from your ICH? But as people who do clinical research and as scientists at the table, we think of outcomes potentially differently, right? Is it an imaging outcome? Because if I can prevent hematoma expansion, but they ultimately have complications in the ICU from their pneumonia and whatever else, like I don't feel particularly morally responsible for that. I mean, as the intensivist, I do. But as the person seeing them on the front line, if I can prevent the hematoma expansion, great, I've done my job, right? I've had a viable beneficial outcome. Then it's up to the other people to take care of the downrange stuff. What are we really talking about when we talk about improvement in outcomes? Are we still talking about modified ranking scoring and whether or not you can walk independently? What are we using and what should we be talking about? Right. So I would say that traditionally, we oftentimes are still talking about modified ranking scale at three months, for example, which would be a, a kind of typical and traditional stroke outcome. But there's more, there are more and more data suggesting that we should follow patients for longer outcomes to six months or even beyond that. One of the areas that I've been working on from a research standpoint and collaborating with is also related to the idea that after ICH, there can be this development of progressive cognitive decline. So not just the deficits from the ICH itself, but then development of cognitive decline over the course of probably a few years. So I think it's a great point that what we consider to be the outcomes continues to evolve to a certain extent and, and does continue to become a little more complicated and over a longer time range than we probably thought initially. And, and part of the challenge with stroke in general, including hemorrhages, is just 
the heterogeneity in the type of hemorrhage, the size, the location, right? You may have a small hemorrhage that's in a critical area, for example, motor function, and the patient is very weak on the left or right side. And you may have a larger hemorrhage in an area of the brain where there isn't that kind of critical function and the patient doesn't have as severe of deficits. Um, and then from the hemorrhage size and location, how do you assess for something like expansion, right? Which is usually defined as a percent or CC size increase, but um, again, that can vary depending on the specific hemorrhage as far as the actual clinical effects of that expansion. You know, there's a couple of things that add on to that. The first is to your point about location, right? So if we're thinking about intracerebral hemorrhage or intracerebral hemorrhage specifically, the vast majority of those are deep white matter lesions, right? They're pontine or internal capsule lesions. And so by default, even a small growth could represent more detrimental loss of function. And because they're hemorrhagic and not ischemic strokes, by the time the patient arrives to the ER, that hemorrhage has already taken out a certain part of critical tissue. And so I think we have this sort of bias towards futility that, well, the hemorrhage is already there, it doesn't matter. And the small lesions don't get reversed. We don't see people go from cortical hand to nothing like we do with thrombolytics. So preventing those small lesions from getting bigger in that valuable real estate is important. The other thing that's important is looking globally at all intracranial hemorrhages, preventing like a subdural expansion, uh, for instance, that would cause midline shift and secondary injury could be important, but is hard to capture, you know? So if you have someone anticoagulated with a subdural and you can resuscitate, reverse that person and temporize it to get them to the OR for evacuation, that's a lot trickier to measure because the natural history is varied, but usually pretty bad. And I think if we can prevent that sort of thing, um, it may be hard to capture in, in some of our large outcome data, but also our research data are trying to go from heterogeneity to homogeneity. So you're not going to see the true mixed population of all intracranial bleeding in some of our studies. I think that's right. We've, we've excluded a lot of them. We traditionally think of parenchymal ICH, but you're right. There are other lesions that we should be considering in our discussions. What you guys have described in terms of therapeutic options seem to me like multiple spokes on a wheel. And this big wheel spins, and that spinning wheel is the coordinated care inside a hospital and between hospitals and within a region. I'm going to push you guys a little bit to talk about coordinating that care. How do we do it better? What are our biggest problems right now? Trauma patients, right? You get a gunshot wound in the chest, where do you go? You go to your trauma center. You have an acute ischemic stroke, where do you go? Probably a stroke center if EMS is doing their job right. What happens with ICH patients who sort of slip through a little bit? You wind up at a not a comprehensive stroke center, now you've got an ICH, how do we coordinate the care? Should they be moved? These are big questions, right? But talk to me about coordination in your clinical practices. What do you see from the research standpoint? What's coming down the pipeline? So I think currently what we often see in an institution is an initial consult to neurosurgery, probably most commonly as the service that's involved earliest. And then from there to oftentimes determine, well, is this a patient that could stay at the institution where they're currently located or be transferred somewhere else? And that's based on oftentimes many factors related to the severity of the hemorrhage as well as the potential for surgery. But do keep in mind that the majority of spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage patients, especially those hemorrhages in the basal ganglia, very, very rarely have surgery, right? It's not typically a surgically treated condition. I think in the future, we may see more involvement and we probably should see more involvement from, for example, the stroke team, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier about how this can be similar to treatment of ischemic stroke. So particularly if we think about something like 
you know, the current clinical trial going on fastest in which factor 7a versus placebo is being given to patients within two hours, so a randomized clinical trial within two hours of last known normal, if a treatment like that is shown to be effective, then it really starts to fall more in the scope of a stroke team, right? Making a decision about giving IV medication early in the patient's course as opposed to just something like a potential surgical option. So in summary, I think that it, the variability within institutions, hopefully over time, will start to be more clear where, again, it's not like, okay, I call neurosurgery and then I wait and maybe, you know, how when do I hear back and when do I transfer? But it becomes a little more streamlined with something like maybe a stroke team like we currently do for ischemic stroke. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on that for a second because I agree with you. And I think it's really intriguing to me that we call a surgeon for a non-surgical lesion all the time to promise us that it's non-surgical. When we knew it was non-surgical, we made the phone call, right? And during that 20 minutes it takes to have that conversation, we potentially delayed care that otherwise could have occurred had we called a multidisciplinary team. You know, we talk about things like the PERT teams and our shock teams and our ECMO teams. I feel like the stroke team is a great example, but we tend to think about stroke teams for acute ischemic strokes. That's historical. I wonder if that's going to be the future state. I wonder if what you're describing is really what we ought to be doing. And if it is, how do we get neurologists who traditionally aren't excited about ICH excited about ICH? How do we bring that under the rubric of stroke teams? It's sort of weird. We actually have a stroke team co-director sitting here at our table. Right. We could totally press him to answer that. Yeah, no, that would be an interesting concept to pursue. Um, you know, here's the deal, right? The reason people started caring about stroke and devoting their careers to stroke is that we could do something about it. Right. It was a, a dismal disease without a fellowship, without a stroke pathway until we developed an effective therapy for it. So I think if Kyle can put together uh, a therapy that changes the course, then it's going to be something of interest because clinicians were already trained to care for acute ischemic strokes have been getting called about hemorrhagic strokes for as long as there's been CT scans because all the pre-hospital screening tells you is that there's a large focal neurologic deficit. And we all know that a certain percent of those are going to be hemorrhagic strokes. Traditionally, we've said, you know, no, you know, not a candidate for thrombolytics, I need to move on to the next case. But if there's an opportunity to move the needle in patient outcomes, and we have an effective therapy, um, and you could argue that for some lesions, we do have effective therapies in terms of reversal of anticoagulation. But when there's an effective therapy to marry with an acute hemorrhagic stroke, then I think the stroke infrastructure, by which I mean telemedicine, teleradiology, transfer protocols and everything, can shift to adapt to that new reality. We saw them do it already with LVO strokes and coordinating all of a sudden we have to coordinate another subspecialist to come and do a procedure. So we made that pivot pretty quickly because there were compelling data to do so. I also think that the difference between hemorrhagic stroke and some of the other things we get called for is that long play you talked about, right? So these folks can be in the hospital for a long time, just given the persistent functional deficits that they have, given, you know, slow EVD weans and things like that. And so, you know, I'm going to challenge the paradigm as well to say that if, if, if someone meets certain criteria, and I don't have those off my head, but certain criteria predicting that they're going to have a long course and it's going to be a rough go, there should be a specialist like a neurointensivist or a neurologist who's comfortable managing complicated ICH patients involved in that patient's care. That doesn't mean they need to be primary, but it means that as we see the growth of, you know, neuro ICUs and consult services for severe stroke patients, those services at whatever hospital you're at should involve intracerebral uh, hemorrhage patients as well. I don't disagree. Dr. Walsh, I'm going to ask you. Kirscher mentions 
we've got reversal agents for people who are anticoagulated. Those therapies clearly work. Does blood pressure management work for ICH? So I think that the, the data are not strong um, for as far as the clinical trials, but keep in mind that the clinical trials looked at two targets that were both lower than what many patients present at. So the point I'm trying to make is that although there were no clear differences between the two targets in the trial like ATAC and INTERACT, that doesn't suggest that we should just allow patients to be even more elevated than that, right? And so they, I think that it still makes sense to lower patients' blood pressure, the guidelines would suggest, to systolic of 140 to 160, unless the patients start at a particularly elevated pressure, like systolic greater than 220 to 230. But even in those, case, those cases, I think that lowering still makes sense, maybe just not quite as aggressively or quite as fast. Um, and you also have to keep in mind, of course, the effects on other organ systems by lowering the patient's blood pressure using IV agents. But in general, most of these patients should still have their blood pressure lowered acutely to systolic range of 140 to 160. And again, the idea behind that is to help uh, lessen the hematoma expansion, which can occur especially early after the hemorrhage in those first two to three hours. I'm going to say that statement right there is A, brilliant, and B, evidence of the need for early subspecialty involvement. Because the three of us, you know, we can sit and talk about that, but what a frontline provider wants to know is, give me a goal and I will, I will work towards that goal. Give me a transfer pattern and I will work towards that. If There is so much nuance to what you just said, and I agree with all of it, but it, it means that we, we as a, a specialty, a core of, of people who want to take care of acute neurologic emergencies need to have a seat at the table when we're talking about the first three hours of ICH management. Yeah, because I, th I think the point that you both made is that the care is complicated and it actually takes someone to quarterback and coordinate um, and people to execute as well. And I don't think that that one call to a single provider like a neurosurgeon or a neurologist is necessarily the right way to go. It does seem like this is team-based care. This is killing me because I'm clearly making an argument for our stroke team to be more involved in ICH. Um, and we already take 9,000 pages a year or something like that. But I, I, think, I think it's true, right? I think that we've proven that need, um, at least uh, philosophically. Gentlemen, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, being here with us. Thank you for listening. This has been a recording of the National Stroke Education Center. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.